I am normally the type of person who tries to debunk conspiracy theories. And I imagine a lot of people in our comment section hate that and you're gonna hate it even more as time goes on. Uh, but in this case, this is really freaking weird. Welcome to The Lost Debate, unconventional media for the rest of us. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Corey Braff. And welcome to our second show. Corey, what do we have in store? We've got a lot to talk about today on our second show. Coming up, we're diving into the fake photos circulating about the supply shortages. Why is President Biden keeping the JFK file secret? COVID antibodies, are they as effective as the vaccine? And on what does it mean? Gas prices are way too damn high. But first... Let's talk about the big story today that everybody is talking about, this Kyle Rittenhouse story. He's finally going to trial for uh, some alleged crimes that were committed last year during all the protests against police. Uh, there was a shooting of a black man in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Kyle Rittenhouse, who's not from Kenosha, Wisconsin, you know, 17 at the time, crossed state lines with an AR-15 to protect businesses from these protests. Chaos ensued, and he ended up shooting uh, three individuals, killing two, injuring another. Uh, he's going on trial for murder now, but the judge in the case is actually saying that the prosecution cannot refer to the people that Kyle Rittenhouse shot as victims. And a lot of people are getting up in arms about that because that same judge also said that the defense can refer to those individuals as looters or rioters if they can actually prove that's what they were there doing. And I mean, on the surface, the fact that those individuals can't be referred to as victims, that sounds kind of absurd, Ravi. But I mean, is there more to the story here? There is. And it's actually common enough uh, across the country and in Wisconsin for judges in a self-defense case to exclude the term victims. It's not what all judges do, or, and it might not even be what most judges do, but there seems to be a lot of judges who exclude this term. And the reason mm -hmm. is because that's what the jury is there to decide. You know, in this case, the question is whether those people were victims or not. That's mm -hmm. basically what this entire trial is going to be about. So if you allow people to call them victims, the theory goes, then you're presupposing the role of the jury. And I know this is hard for people to hear, but, you know, in these cases, you know, there's a saying, you know, uh, hard facts make bad law. Mm -hmm. uh, so think about it like this, like Jeffrey Dahmer, for example, is still accorded the same rights as everybody else when he went to trial, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, even the worst of society, if you think that uh, he is of the worst of society, mm -hmm. deserves due process, deserves the same protections as everybody else in our criminal justice system. And one you know experiment I want our audience to go through here is change the facts and keep the law the same. Mm -hmm. So think about a self-defense case that you may be more sympathetic, like a domestic violence, uh, alleged domestic violence case, mm -hmm. where a wife kills her husband and claims that the husband was threatening her life. In that case, you may be more sympathetic to the fact that we don't call that husband a victim in that case. You may want to keep that for the jury to decide. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that case, you also may want to say that introducing evidence and trying to prove that the husband was violent in that moment and was doing certain things that night, like this would be the equivalent of the looting thing yeah. uh, with the people who were shot, is the kind of thing that you want to preserve in trial. And it's just hard for people to hear because a person accused of a crime mm -hmm. has different rights than the victim and everybody else, and sometimes it can feel absurd. This is not a question of whether Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, like this particular question that this judge was deciding is not the, the ultimate question of innocence or guilt, yeah. right? And I yeah. think that the, the, the public is litigating the ultimate outcome right now, where I think you gotta take it step by step and say, are these the rules we wanna apply in situations even when we have more sympathetic facts? Yeah, I think in this particular case, what it really boils down to for me is whether or not he put himself in a position to sort of kind of court the danger 
uh, that he received because he's claiming self-defense. I mean, there's videos all online of the protesters running after him, screaming, get him. So his defense is going to say this was self-defense because they were trying to attack him. But he's the one with the AR-15. He's the one with the gun. And in this particular time period where, you know, mass shootings are very prevalent, uh, one could argue that if these protesters see someone approaching them with an AR-15, they can say, oh, this guy is going to go on a mass shooting. Let's disarm him. Because that's what it looks like they're trying to do in the video. It looks like they're trying to disarm him. So they could claim they were trying to act in self-defense against someone who was going to shoot them. It's kind of hard for the person with the gun to say he's acting in self-defense against people who don't have guns. So, um, but there's, there's a lot of other things that happened before. Uh, I think at some point a, a gunshot was fired prior to what happened with him shooting. So obviously they're going to, you know, make all those claims that, that this was self-defense, but I'm just not sure if I can see this as self-defense because again, he, he, he put himself in this situation. He didn't live in Kenosha, Wisconsin. This wasn't down the street from his house. He crossed state lines illegally as a 17 year old with weapons to sort of kind of seek out that danger. And so it kind of seems like, you know, he got the danger he was seeking. Well, the law in Wisconsin here, they're, they're, and by the way, to take a step back, the, the dual roles we need to keep in mind here are the judge's role which is to decide what the law is. And in some cases, and this can be tricky, to gatekeep for the jury about what facts are allowed or are not allowed, right? And so like a good example to go back to our case of domestic violence, like let's say you're uh, the prosecution mm -hmm. uh, in that case and you wanna put that wife away uh, for killing her husband, you may want to tarnish her reputation, right? So you may want to say, you know what, she's sleeping around or this and that. And then if you're a good defense attorney, you're going to be like, look, that's not relevant. It's not relevant. Right. Yeah. So not every fact is relevant. And sometimes it's a question of the judge to say, this fact is relevant and this fact isn't relevant. And this is where I'm a little bit less sympathetic to this judge is that mm -hmm. there are a lot of facts here that I agree with the judge when the judge excluded them. Mm -hmm. But there was one set of facts in particular that, I, that I'm puzzled by, which is there was this video of Kyle Rittenhouse before this incident, I think it was a few weeks before this incident, which he appears to be talking about his desire to shoot people. Bro, I wish I had my fucking AR. I'd start shooting rounds at them. Bro, I wish I had my fucking AR. Um, I'd, <laughs> I'd start shooting rounds at them. And the video is kind uh, of from his perspective yeah. looking at people. Mm -hmm. uh, and this gets right to the question of this trial, because the state law of Wisconsin says, and I'll quote this, uh, a person can fire in self-defense if they reasonably believe that such force is necessary to prevent imminent death or bodily harm to themselves. So the question for the jury is, what was in his mind? And I think it's relevant that a few weeks from this, he was saying, I wish I could shoot my fucking AR. I'd start shooting at them. That, that would seem yeah. to speak to his state of mind. That seems super relevant. The fact that that's being excluded, as well as the fact that he had ties to the Proud Boys and other white nationalist organizations, the fact that the judge has also excluded that information, that sort of kind of fueling the notion that the progressives are making is that, that this is some sort of nod to white supremacy, that the fact that this individual is getting allowed to have this case, you know, you know, spelled out like this, that, that all these things are being excluded. A lot of people are saying that he's getting that sort of kind of white privilege, that sort of kind of white supremacy is playing into this. And that's, I think the, I think that's something that the, the left is saying a lot right now, that this is a, this is the case of white supremacy, but I don't know. It kind of also feels like the judge is really just sort of kind of sticking to the protocol of due process here. Well, it has a particular theory of due process, right? So this judge also excluded, uh, excluded criminal history of one of the people shot. So I oh, think this, this okay. judge has a pretty narrow, 
uh, definition of what is relevant in the courtroom. And people can quibble with that or not, but mm -hmm. I, I have to say, I've not seen evidence that this is being driven by white supremacy yet. I could disagree with certain choices, mm -hmm. but I do think it is a stretch to say that this is white supremacy. There are people attacking this judge's character because this judge has done some strange things. Like I think he ordered, you know, many years ago, uh, AIDS testing for a prostitute. Oh, wow. uh, he uh, has, he, I think he ordered a public shaming uh, of somebody in his courtroom. My reading of this judge's background and, and I, I reserve the right to change my mind based on new facts if yeah. something comes out about this judge. But based on the things I've read, this seems like a very law and order judge. You know, kind of like if you've seen the movie The Judge, like Robert yeah. Downey Jr.'s dad, mm -hmm. it kind of feels like that kind of guy. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, if you are uh, somebody who wants to see Kyle Rittenhouse behind bars, you would almost want that kind of judge because mm -hmm. that's a kind of anti-defendant judge. Uh, I don't personally have strong opinions about what kind of judge I want to see in any given case, but mm -hmm. I'm not sure that his background says what people say, say it does. Yeah, I agree. I think that the larger context of this is that this particular case is really playing out into the culture war that's going on back and forth between progressives and conservatives in this country right now. It's not a lot of people really looking at the actual facts of what happened that night. They're looking at how it plays into their side of the culture war. Obviously, if you're on the left, you hate Kyle Rittenhouse, you see him as a murderer, and you want him to, of course, get a guilty verdict here. If you're on the right, you see him as a hero. I mean, there are conservatives who raised money for his bail. I'm sure a lot of his legal uh, fees are being paid by some of the money that conservatives have raised for him because they see him as a hero going against looters and rioters. So obviously, I think that because of the culture war narrative here, it's going to be very difficult for a lot of objectivity to be applied to this case. I think the jury is going to have a hard time with that as well. But what do we think as far as like outcomes here? I mean, do we really think that this is going to get a guilty verdict? I would be surprised by a guilty verdict here. And obviously so much depends upon the makeup of this jury. Uh, if, yeah. if you, you know, everybody's been consuming OJ content, like yeah. the, 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 the outcome of the OJ trial was largely decided by the decision to do it in downtown LA versus yeah. in Brentwood or versus wherever. In county, yeah. Uh, in this case, the question is going to be who's going to be on that jury. And I don't know a lot about the jury selection process or you know what people's politics are. I think mm -hmm. one sad fact of America now is that our institutions, including our criminal justice systems, has become politicized and juries are becoming politicized. And I think all he needs, Kyle Rittenhouse, is a, a sympathetic or a few sympathetic people. Yeah. Uh, and I've been listening to these oral arguments and I have to say, and I don't mean to be mean, but as somebody who went to law school... Uh, and his ears, the prosecution feels a little bit clown carish. Uh, they seem like they're a little out of their depth. Uh, they're not. They're not as clear as mm -hmm. you would imagine uh, a prosecution being in this case. Mm -hmm. uh, and I am not confident they're going to be able to make their case. And the defense has a lot to work with because, yeah. as this judge has narrowed the amount of facts that can come in, um, imagine being a juror that doesn't know any of the stuff that we know. Yeah. Right. And and you're just looking at that incident on the video, which is very hard for people to imagine because we have so much context. Uh, and then, you know, that there's a gunshot that happens, you know, that the, some of the kids are approaching him. So it's like I could very much imagine uh, enough jurors uh not sufficiently uh, convinced and this being either hung jury or not guilty. Yeah, I think mistrial is the most likely outcome, but obviously we'll just have to wait and see. Kenosha, Wisconsin better brace itself because I'm sure there'll be a lot of protests if it does end up in that, that particular outcome. So uh, the next story we want to talk about deals with the empty shelves of America right now. But are they really as empty as we think they are? Uh, Fox News and Newsmax 
actually released these pictures on some stories that they were posting the other day, basically showing empty shelves saying this is Biden's America. This is all the White House's fault. We've got all these supply chain issues and high inflation. And Joe Biden is mostly responsible for it. The president getting ridiculed online as hashtag empty shelves Joe over the supply chain crisis he waited too long to fix. But some fact checking was done. And we come to find out that these photos that both Newsmax and Fox News were showing were not actually from any time recent. They were actually from uh, as far back as March 2020. So right at the start of the pandemic when everybody was hoarding toilet paper and stuff. That's when these pictures came from. Not to mention further investigation revealed that the pictures weren't even from America. They were taken outside the country. So they had nothing to do with anything that's going on right now with the supply chain. And I mean, that just goes into sort of kind of this like, you know, this misinformation that we constantly get from mainstream media. It reminds me of a couple of weeks ago, everybody was talking about CNN lying on Joe Rogan, saying he was taking horse dewormer. They got caught in that lie. Joe Rogan was very adamant about calling them out on it. And everybody was like, oh, CNN, you know, you're lying. But like, this is the exact same thing on the other side of the political spectrum. Now we've got Fox News using fake photos, essentially, to try to blame Biden for the supply chain crisis. Yeah, it reminds me of another case, too, which was 2018, mm -hmm. when there was a lot of heat about uh, kids being in cages and the the rightfully so. And yeah. the pictures being used by certain media outlets were from uh, the Obama administration, yeah. it turns out. Uh, yeah. And it kind of shows you like there's we have a little bit of selective heat uh, depending on which media source you're coming from. And it's it's unclear sometimes what where this is coming from. Is this just incompetence? Is it laziness or is it? Uh, very possibly the desire of some producer somewhere to say, we can make this point with even more emotional salience if instead of half full shelves, we mm -hmm. get fully, like, you know, fully empty shelves. Yeah. Like, you know, and, and that the audience can't handle the nuance yeah. between like March 2020 level uh, bare shelves versus now where it might be, you know, not as highly stocked, but mm -hmm. not as apocalyptic looking. Yeah, that's the point that I was making is like, it just seems like Fox News could have really made a serious nuanced point about Biden's failures when it comes to the supply chain crisis. But instead, they decided to just show photos that weren't even really going on right now, that weren't even relevant to what's going on right now. And it seems like they just didn't respect their audience enough or maybe didn't even think that their audience was smart enough to handle a nuanced conversation about what's really going on in the supply chain. They just showed some random photos out of context to try to just, you know, visually blame everything on Biden when it was all sort of kind of just, you know, rampant misinformation that they were spreading. Right, because what's the consequence to them, right? Like, let's say we do what we're doing right now and we're mm -hmm. like, well, those photos are fake. And then they'll be like, well, you're not taking seriously the real story anyway, which is there is a supply chain shortage. So let's do that. Let's take seriously the supply chain shortage. Derek Thompson in The Atlantic, I think, summarized this the best, which is uh, he called it a hydra of bottlenecks. Uh, and this hydra of bottlenecks is longstanding and it has many fathers and mothers. Biden is one of them, to be yeah. clear, but he is not the only person responsible for this right now. And you have a few things going on at once. One is you have stimulus, and this is Biden stimulus and Trump stimulus, which hit the public at a time where people are staying at home more, which means that they're uh, buying more home goods, hard goods. Uh, second is that we had the Delta variant, and that was affecting particularly East Asian factories, yeah. uh, where a lot of our stuff comes from, uh, including our semiconductors, which is why you're seeing a shortage of that kind of stuff. You have a historic worker shortage, and in particular, in jobs that Americans don't want to do, like yeah. dock workers, uh, truck drivers. Yep. Uh, and then in a related story, we have lower immigration than usual, in part because of the pandemic, in part because of politics. Yep. And you put that all together, and you have this hydra, and that's tricky. Some of that Biden's responsible for, some of it he isn't. But 
you know, Fox could have made that point, but they didn't they didn't make that point. Yeah, they decided to just sort of kind of solely blame Biden for all of this because of the politics of it instead of really going into the nuances of what's really happening here. And there's a lot of things we could do to try to, you know, fix our supply chain issues, you know, from manufacturing more here in America to uh, opening up trade deals and things like that. Uh, but ultimately, it just again, it just it's just sort of kind of disrespectful to the audience to say, oh, it's all this one guy's fault when it's much more complicated than that. And they're really just doing that for political reasons. Well, that's not the only story going on, Corey. What else do we have? Well, speaking of presidents that people didn't really like, um, well, it's a president that people or at least, like. At least one person didn't like. Well, yeah. Well, uh, maybe just one person. <laughs> um, so there's information coming out. It seems like every few years, there's this new information coming out about what actually happened to John F. Kennedy. You know, the Kennedy assassination and everything like that. And recently, the Biden administration was going to release previously unreleased documents about what happened to John F. Kennedy. And at the last minute, they decided not to. And their reasoning for not releasing these files was super sus, Robbie. It was a super sus description for why they decided not to release these files. Their exact quote was, temporary continued postponement is necessary to protect against identifiable harm to the military defense, intelligence operations, law enforcement, or the conduct of foreign relations that is of such gravity that it outweighs the public interest in immediate disclosure. I mean, they named like four or five different things there, and then they used the word or, so we don't even know which one it is. I mean, this is super shady. Like, what exactly are they trying to say here? Like, who would really be at risk from, from these files getting out 60-something years later? Well, Corey, let me put on my tinfoil hat for you, all right? I am normally the type of person who tries to debunk conspiracy theories. And I imagine a lot of people in our comment section hate that. And mm -hmm. you're going to hate it even more as time goes on. Uh, but in this case, this is really freaking weird. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this, for me, this all starts with the fact that Trump yes. also didn't release this information. And I don't mean this to bash Trump. I actually, to give him a little bit of credit, he's he doesn't give a fuck. And so when when he was spooked about this file and didn't release it, I'm like, what could possibly have spooked him? Because he it was such a big PR moment for him. He could have said, I'm the one who finally told this story. What is the story? Well, let's figure out what the story really is, Ravi. Let me, let me try to take a stab at this. First of all, it says something about military defense intelligence operations. That kind of like leads into like this big conspiracy theory that the CIA had something to do with JFK's uh, assassination. Then it talks about law enforcement. And there's another prevailing theory that the Secret Service was somehow involved. Like the Secret Service like accidentally shot him because Lee Harvey Oswald started shooting. So they just like accidentally shot him. And obviously you'd want to protect that information. And then it says, or... So we don't even know what any of this is or the conduct of foreign relations. So that gets into maybe like, you know, Cuba stuff that was going on at that time. There's always been uh, rumors that the mafia has something to do with this. And so like there's all these conspiracy theories and this just really just widens the gap. Like we now we just we, there's just more speculation than answers here. Yeah. There's this saying that if you hear hooves think horses, not zebras, meaning like it's usually the simplest explanation. Mm -hmm. And I've usually fallen into this camp on this particular issue. Single gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald. Come but on, then if that's man. true, then what the hell are they like? What what could possibly be in this file that they're that worried about it all this time later? Like, is there even anybody alive left yeah, who but, is involved in this? I mean, do you really believe in the Warren Commission, though? I mean, I'm, I'm just saying. But but let's just be serious for one second here. It is very possible that because of the way they worded this, I guess it's sort of possible that perhaps 
it's not necessarily like the smoking gun. Oh, we absolutely have the information of who killed them or, or, you know, obviously the government has never gone against the Warren Commission. They never said anybody other than Lee Harvey Oswald had anything to do with it. But perhaps this information could put current operations, like things that we got going on as far as spying on other countries or things that the CIA is doing. Perhaps this could put those current operations at risk of exposure if this last little bit of information comes out. I'm so not ready to take possible. my tinfoil hat off on this one. Because like, if that's true, like what technology are we using in the 1960s to spy on people that we're still using today? Like that, I'm not sure yet. I'm not ready. I'm okay. not ready to take it off. All right. Well, I mean, look, I'm sure one day maybe we'll have the answers about this JFK stuff. All right. So coming up, are COVID antibodies as good as the vaccine? We're going to take a look at that when we come back. What? What? What's actually happening? What's actually happening? What? So there was this exchange between Sanjay Gupta and Joe Rogan from a few weeks ago that's getting a lot of attention. And there's one part of this conversation in particular that I want to zero in on. Let's roll the tape. So for you, Joe Rogan, yes, I would say you've had it. Yes. To not get one shot of the vaccine. No. Why not? Because I have better immunity than I would if I was vaccinated. So Joe Rogan got COVID and recovered and is saying he has a stronger immunity than if he got the vaccine. And that brings us to... What's actually happening? Natural immunity versus vaccines. And I want to start by by respecting the position that Rogan has here. It's actually super reasonable to think that natural immunity to a disease is better than vaccinated immunity because that is true of most diseases. And I want to credit Nicholas Christakis from Yale for giving us a lot of this background. So um, as he's described, if you get exposed to a virus, your body might mount a response to the many different proteins that are on this virus. They may attack different parts of the virus. So there's a diversity of a response that happens in your natural response. But if you have a vaccine, often it only attacks what they call a spike protein. So you might just have a narrow part of the virus that your body is responding to and building up immunity to. So in most cases, that means that natural immunity is stronger, but that's not true of every disease. So it's not true of tetanus. It's not true of rabies. You actually die from rabies for the most part. Um, you don't really recover. HPV, uh, those are all exceptions to that rule. And it turns out that COVID-19 is probably an exception to, and I'm gonna to explain to you why. Uh, number one, uh, more than a third of people who have COVID-19 infections, uh, per the most recent study on this, uh, result in zero protective antibodies after a few weeks. Translation, um, two thirds of people get antibodies after getting COVID, but one third don't get any at all, which means you have no protection after that, it seems. Uh, and uh, that's a huge problem, but that's not the only problem here. Second is that even if you do get antibodies after having COVID-19, uh, your natural immunity is actually going to fade faster than vaccinated immunity. And there is uh, there are a couple studies on this. Um, and to start off, uh, independent studies of both Pfizer and Moderna uh, have reported that strong vaccine protection lasts for at least six months. That's a study from August of 2021. Uh, and if you compare that to natural immunity, there are multiple studies, one from November 2020, one from October 2021, that show that antibodies after natural immunity declined pretty fast. One of those studies said that after 60 days, 94% uh, of people experienced a decline in antibodies and 28% uh, of people didn't have any immunity at all. So yet another study confirming that 
a lot of times you don't get any antibodies after a while after getting natural immunity. Uh, and so the best course for people who actually have gotten COVID and recovered is to get vaccinated as well. And that's like the super option for people. So uh, obviously you don't want to go out and get COVID because uh, that's super deadly. But if you've already had COVID and you get the, the vaccine, it's actually two times more effective than the natural immunity you've had before. And as I've mentioned, like the problem with this natural immunity piece, in addition to everything I just talked about, is that you have to risk dying from COVID in order to get it. Uh, and so we have some real problems here, uh, but not all the data is conclusive on this. There was one study from Israel in August of 2021 that was making the rounds that seems to suggest the opposite. This study is the one study I could find among a lot of studies that, by the way, say the opposite, but this is the one study I could find that says that natural immunity actually is stronger than vaccine protection. Uh, and I have a few things to say about this. Uh, number one, this was debunked or at least criticized pretty strongly by the public health community for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is something called selection bias, which is that this study went back and, and looked at data from a population that was largely vaccinated and what wound up happening is they weren't able to create a strong control in the study. So they were comparing a group of people who were vaccinated who have who had way more risk factors than the people who were unvaccinated. So the people who were vaccinated in the study were twice as likely to be diagnosed with cancer, uh, more than twice as likely to have an underlying immunocompromising condition. Uh, but the second problem is what they call survivorship bias, which is they didn't account in this study for the people who never got vaccinated but died from COVID, which seems super relevant, right? But that's not all, right? The people who had that, who did that study, in the end, still concluded that you should get the vaccine after you recover from COVID. But um, the bigger thing here is don't cherry pick studies. Uh, that confirm what you want to believe, right? Uh, there are a bunch of studies, and the range of different options you have here is the Israel study, which says that 5% of people who recover from COVID don't develop antibodies. And then there's on the other extreme, a study from Germany that says 85% of people who recover from COVID don't receive antibodies. Now, do I think the 85% number is right? No. Do I think the 5% number is right? Probably not either. That's why that that most recent study from UPenn at 36% seems kind of reasonable to me. So don't be a cherry picker on this kind of stuff. Uh, and it's important to just remind you that uh, COVID is deadly and the vaccine works. Vaccinated people are eight times less likely to be infected and 25 times less likely to experience hospitalization or death and much less likely to get what they call long COVID, which if you want to Google that is really horrible. It includes things like brain fog. Uh, it will prevent you from doing your job and being a clear-headed person for a long time. And that stuff affects young people and old people. Obviously, young people are less likely to develop COVID symptoms and die. But the flip side of that is that same study from UPenn I was talking about. Um, it's the young people who don't or are less likely to develop antibodies after they recover. So those are the people who don't get the protection after getting COVID or less likely to get the protection from after getting COVID than older people do. So conclusion, if you're a younger person, you have extra reason to get vaccinated in that scenario. Now, um, the global picture is relevant here too. You can't find a country that has used natural immunity uh, to decrease their levels of infection and get their situation under control. Iran, Brazil, two examples that uh, have high rates of natural infection and recovery and are shit shows on this. It's also like there's a whole separate conversation here about vaccine passports 
you know, some countries and certain institutions will recognize natural immunity as uh, something equivalent to a vaccine passport. The U.S. by and large is not that. Uh, and the reason is pretty simple. It's hard to prove natural immunity because of the reasons I talked about. If your uh, antibodies don't show up after a few weeks of getting infected, how do you prove that you got COVID if you didn't get a positive test uh, from an institution they recognized before? There's also the question of like governments need to decide what level of immunity is appropriate for them. You might have more immunity from natural immunity than the average person who didn't get vaccinated or have natural immunity, but you're still going to have less than the vaccinated person per the evidence I talked about. And it's up for governments to decide what's the level of immunity that they think is important. So the conclusion is I understand the appeal of this argument for natural immunity, but the available evidence suggests that a lot of people don't get antibodies at all from natural immunity and that the, those who do get uh, antibodies, their antibodies are fading faster than vaccinated immunity uh, and that people who have uh, natural immunity and get the vaccine, that's awesome. You should do that. That's better than everybody else. And you have to risk getting COVID to get natural immunity. So don't do that. I understand this appeal of natural, right? But not all natural things are good, right? It's natural to have sex without a condom, but I don't I don't recommend doing that unless you're married and really trust your, your spouse. So I think that's all I have to say on this matter. Um, be safe out there and get vaccinated. Um, very interesting stuff, Ravi. Well, um, especially towards the end there. I feel like I'm better than everybody else then because I got COVID-19 and then I did get the vaccination. But also pointing to all of this information, um, before I moved to New York, I was actually doing work as like an extra uh, in Atlanta. And a lot of the uh, sets that I was working on wanted me to be fully vaccinated. And I had just gotten my first shot, hadn't gotten my second shot yet. And so I literally emailed one of the people that were trying to book me. And I said, look, I got my first shot and I've also had COVID before. Does that count? Like, can you count those? And it's like, I basically tried to use this argument. I was like, can you count those antibodies from my first, you know, bout with COVID and my Vax card? And they told me to F off. So they weren't, yeah. they weren't having it. So, but it is interesting that having the vaccine plus having COVID gives you that, that super protection. So that's, that's a really interesting point. Right. And I'm sympathetic to people who make this argument, as I said, and I am particularly sympathetic to your situation because you're trying to get vaccinated there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I hadn't seen a lot of data about one shot yeah. and, um, and natural immunity. Mm -hmm. But the whole point is like my, where I come down on this, unless you have a pre-existing medical condition, mm -hmm. Uh, that says that you're going to have some kind of response to the vaccine or religious exemption, mm -hmm. um, the vaccine is really helpful. So the intention matters, the compliance matters, like that person who's a compliance director. Yeah, they had to go with what you they- so many know. different, it's complicated to prove these types of things. Absolutely. And I know Absolutely. that's frustrating to people, but that's how private institutions and government, they want to simplify things as much as possible. Yeah, that was some really interesting stuff, uh, Ravi. We'll be right back, folks. It's time for another edition of What Does It Mean? Where I decode the most pressing political memes making the rounds on Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you get your mass misinformation from. So if you have friends or family that live outside the progressive enclaves of major US cities, you've probably seen a meme like this floating around your news feed lately. It's Uncle Joe taking a selfie with some gas prices behind him, 545 for just regular, oh my gosh. It looks crazy, you know, those are some pretty steep prices. What exactly does 
Joe Biden have to do with high gas prices? Well, there's a host of memes out there that are placing the blame for high gas prices squarely on Biden and even his supporters for voting for him. Just look at this shoddy work of art that claims to show us gas prices from the last time Biden was in office. I mean, geez, you got to start using PNG files when memeing it up like this, guys. But this last pixelated mess reminds us that the right is even blaming Biden for high gas prices from back when he was vice president. So now not only do they think presidents control gas prices, VPs do, too. And conservative media is really pushing this notion of commander in chiefs controlling gas prices really hard. On October 20th, Fox News ran a story claiming that 84% say rising gas prices are a problem for their family. And if that wasn't bad enough, gas prices are up 10% in just the past month to their highest level in seven years. But they did this story while showing a picture of Joe Biden, implying that he is at fault here. Ben Shapiro posted on Facebook on October 23rd, claiming that Biden was a failed president and further blamed him for the high prices at the pump. So any truth to these memes? Is the president really to blame for higher gas prices? Mm, no, not really. The main factor that drives the price of gas in America is the same factor that drives the price of pretty much everything in a free market economy. A little concept called supply and demand. Let's take it back to 12th grade economics class, because I know a lot of you were too stoned and too concerned with senior prom to pay attention to all of this back then. When supply is high and demand is low, prices go down. That's why gas was so cheap last year during the hype of the pandemic. Travel across the globe was super low and the demand for oil and gas was even lower, so the prices sank. Now economies are reopening and the demand for gas is really high, sending prices back up. What's making those prices even higher is strains on the supply. OPEC, which is an intergovernmental organization of countries that export large amounts of oil, it's actually a literal cartel. They decided not to increase oil production this year, despite calls from both the US and India to raise the supply. All of that combined with the fact that there are international supply chain issues that we talked about earlier in the show that are preventing gas from even getting to us in the first place, this sent the prices as high as, well, Snoop and Willie Nelson using their version of gas. So the right is kind of misleading people by blaming Biden solely for high gas prices. But is there anything he could do to bring these gas prices down? Some on the right say he could just increase oil production right here in America. Well, there are some environmental concerns with that. Oh, that pesky environment, all those trees getting in the way of our oil production. So annoying. But the reality is the overall supply of oil in America wouldn't be enough to really wean ourselves completely off of foreign dependence on foreign oil. Also, it's important to note that American oil production is down this year due to things like Hurricane Ida, which briefly shut down oil refineries in the Gulf Coast back in August. Wow. Extreme weather forcing us to use less fossil fuels. Maybe just maybe Earth has had enough of our shit. But to be fair, sharing low budget gas memes is something left wingers do, too. Liberals used to blame Bush 43 for high gas prices while praising Obama, who did see some really low gas prices by 2016. The problem with memes like this from either side is when you see a picture comparing two sets of gas prices from two different time periods, there's usually no indication of when the pictures were even taken. Plus, the gas prices could be from two different parts of the country, and gas prices vary wildly from town to town, let alone from state to state. Also, most importantly, presidents and the government don't fucking control gas prices. Supply and demand does. The main problem here is memes are usually very inaccurate. And sadly, they're the main source a lot of people get their information from. 
And it's really hard to truly get informed from a pixelated photo that looks like it was shot on a track phone from 2003. So the next time you're consuming your news via memes, remember that memes are a form of entertainment and not the most reputable source of information. Also, anyone can make them. And I'm almost certain that the average meme lord doesn't have a work cited page at the end of their memes. Ravi, does the right have a point here with all of this? Like, is there more that Biden could be doing? I mean, Trump, you know, he fought hard against China when it came to trade deals. He fought hard to get NAFTA re, uh, reorganized. So could Biden be doing that here with OPEC? Yeah, I'm not sure about OPEC and like whether like a more aggressive approach is really going to matter because mm-hmm. they you know, they're under full control over their resources. And some OPEC members are friendly to the United States and some don't give a fuck about the United States. But uh, the real debate, I think, the one real debate here is drilling in sort of disputed areas or in protected lands. And that's an area where Biden is way more skeptical and way more protective of the environment. Uh, Probably not enough for members of the left, but probably too much for members of the right. Right, you can't win. My question on that is like, how much oil and gas in this past one year period would have been pulled out of the ground if there were a different president. And I am skeptical that there would have been so much more supply that would have affected these prices because the United States is not the only country going through this issue. Yeah, absolutely. This is a global issue. And I think a lot of the people on the right are making it just about America and our high gas prices. Um, but I mean, to their credit, yeah, there are, there are things Biden could be doing, but would it really matter in the long, uh, in the grand scheme of things? Uh, probably not. But hopefully those gas prices go down soon. I travel a lot back and forth between New York and Alabama and uh, it's been pretty rough, you know, especially, especially like in Virginia and places like that. They, they seem to have the highest prices. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us on our second episode. We're here every Tuesday and Thursday. Remember to subscribe to us on YouTube. Uh, listen to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your podcast from. And remember to keep dropping those comments uh, for us in, on YouTube. We really like that here at Lost Debate. We'll see you guys next time.